This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So our title this morning is Calling the Needy, and our passage is found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 17. You're welcome to follow along in your Bible, um, or the scripture will be on the screen. But in the meantime, I want to start us off by asking a question. In your lifetime, have you ever been in a situation in which you felt uh, exclusive or special? Part of a club, maybe, that only took or accepted certain members? When I was attending uh, Moody Bible Institute for my undergrad, I'd been given the unique opportunity to live off campus. This was in my, my junior year, and to provide some context here, to be able to live off campus in your junior year, uh, it was a rare opportunity. Most students didn't get the chance to do this until they were in their senior year, um, but I somehow managed to be able to get this in my junior year. And I remember the feeling that I had, like this was some exclusive opportunity. I felt special. This feeling only grew when I realized that they had given commuters, people living off campus, an orange ID badge, and the on-campus students got the plain boring blue one. I still remember holding that special orange ID badge and feeling good about myself. I was part of that special club. Now, we've all felt this way uh, in some way or in another in our time. Maybe you felt this exclusive feeling by getting into a VIP area or backstage passes at a concert. Maybe your job gives you access to areas that other people don't have. We can't help at times but to feel a certain sense of pleasure in certain levels of exclusivity. Perhaps in the back of our minds, we know that this isn't the right feeling to have, but yet we take pleasure in it anyways. And in our passage this morning, we see that Jesus confronts this exclusivity that is often found in our culture, in our values, ultimately our sinful hearts. We'll see that his expectations of who gets to be a part of this kingdom and what this kingdom looks like is largely different from our own experiences or expectations. So this morning we'll see him confront the exclusivity by calling the greatest sinners to follow him, by calling his followers to welcome all people, and by transforming all those in whom he calls. Now, as we've been moving forward in our series, Signs and Wonders, we've seen a fair amount of Jesus' ministry, and we've been given an idea of the care and compassion that Christ has had for those who are in need. We read about Jesus healing a leper, a centurion's servant, woman sick with fever, Last week, Pastor Robin preached about the paralytic whose sins were forgiven and paralysis was healed because of Christ's compassion. As we begin our passage, we see Jesus use this same compassion to confront the exclusivity by calling a great sinner to follow him. And this is the first way that Jesus does this. Jesus calls the greatest sinners to follow him. In verse 9, 
It says that Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And there's a lot to unpack here in this verse. But the first thing that I want to unpack is the fact that Matthew, he was a tax collector. This is significant because by our standards, a tax collector would not be a great candidate for a disciple of Jesus. I'm going to explain this with three common features of tax collectors during Jesus' time. The first one is that tax collectors were often Jews selected by the Romans to collect tax for other Jews. This is significant because their work with the Romans often meant that they were viewed as unclean. Furthermore, the nature of their work was to help the very people who were oppressing them at this time. Tax collectors were viewed as traitors. They were aiding the enemy. Right? This, this wasn't the IRS that we're talking about here. The, the Romans took over, they hired Jews, and then used them to heavily tax other Jews. The second feature is that tax collectors would often skim money off of the top. They were given the authority to decide the amount of tax that each person had to pay. It was common for tax collectors to keep a fraction for themselves. There's no way to prevent tax collectors from taking great proportions or smaller proportions, and sometimes greater was encouraged. This wasn't, of course, at the cost of the Romans. This was at the cost of the Jews. And I'm curious to know how you would feel if maybe, I know tax season is over, but if next year I would come to you about an idea for your taxes. What if I told you that I could do your taxes for you? Okay, you give me all your documents, I will tell you how much money you owe. No refunds next year. Everyone's owing money, okay? And, and you'll definitely be owing money, and you know I will actually have you write the check to me, and then I'll make sure the government gets what you, what you owe. Okay? You don't, you don't even get to see the number. We'll keep it simple. Now, if I, if I or anyone was to present this idea to you, I would hope there would be multiple alarm bells that are going off. But this was the practice during this time, and the Jews had no choice in the matter. The third feature is that tax collectors were cut off from Jewish society. They were unable to be witnesses in court. They weren't allowed to have their money used in the temple. The only authority or position that they had was really to the Roman Empire. Their place in Jewish society was often seen next to harlots and thieves. So we can see that Jesus coming to even speak to a tax collector seems suspect enough that even approaching Matthew would have raised some eyebrows. But Jesus doesn't just smile politely and nod his head hello. He says the wonderful words, follow me. And now an individual branded as a traitor, thief, lowlife, is invited into Jesus' presence. He's called to be one of his disciples. Jesus calls the greatest sinners to follow him. Imagine being Matthew, hated by so many, cut off by your own people, 
then called into the presence of Jesus. I don't know what Matthew was feeling in that moment, but I can only imagine that he felt undeserving of this calling. I imagine that as Jesus addressed him, he probably looked behind him like, are you talking to me? Had he wondered how he, a tax collector, could be invited into an opportunity like this. And yet, we may not know exactly what Matthew was thinking in that moment, but we know by Luke's version of the story that Matthew immediately chose to leave his current life and follow Christ instead. He left everything, that this invitation was too good to pass up, and that was especially true for a tax collector at this time. Verse 10 continues. It says, As Jesus then reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And this is significant because Jesus doesn't just simply call Matthew with discretion and quickly move on. He takes it one step further. Jesus makes the decision to put himself in a social setting with Matthew and other tax collectors. We could argue that perhaps Matthew was one of the better tax collectors or there was something special or different about Matthew that caused Jesus to go against the social norm, but we can't make that argument for verse 10. This was deliberate. Jesus was purposeful in his decision to spend time with Matthew and his tax collectors and sinners reclining and eating dinner with them. Furthermore, these events also were not private in a way that, that we may have people over for dinner today. Jesus being with these tax collectors and sinners was likely open to the public eye. The term reclining implies that this wasn't simply a meal, but more of a banquet, a celebration. So there are two important aspects that we can draw from Jesus in these two verses. The first one is that Jesus intentionally gave his time to those who wanted to be with him, and he didn't allow social expectations or his image, reputation, to dictate who he called into his presence. Jesus desired to be there for those he knew needed him. Nothing else mattered. And if you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus, and you desire to know him, I can promise you he desires to know you. Perhaps you feel like Matthew or like a tax collector, unworthy to come to Jesus. The fact is, is that all of us in this room are unworthy to come to Jesus. Yet he came to us. And wherever you come from, whatever you've done, whatever your race is, your gender, your economic or social class, whatever it is, it does not prevent Jesus from wanting to know you and from calling you into a relationship. Welcome all people. As we continue on in our passage today, we see Jesus come face to face with our own sinful nature to segregate, divide, and discriminate. Verse 11 says that when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
We know that this event was not a private one. It's likely the Pharisees heard about this and came by or saw it in passing. But either way, when they saw this behavior from Jesus, they spoke to his disciples about the matter. They said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I want to make sure that we're well aware of the context here because Matthew and Mark's version of what happens tells us simply that the Pharisees asked the disciples this question. But Luke emphasizes how they were asked, how this question was asked. Luke 5 verse 30 says that the Pharisees complained to his disciples, or another translation of the Greek word says that they murmured or muttered. It was not a, hey, I'm curious, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It was a, ugh, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Right, this was... This was more like Regina George and Mean Girls. Okay, before I met my wife, I never thought I'd be referencing Mean Girls in a sermon. (laughs) The Pharisees saw this. They were bothered, disgusted by the idea of Jesus and his disciples spending time with people like this. For the Pharisees, this went against everything that they believed in. It was their superiority, their exclusivity that would never have allowed them to give people like this a time of day, let alone an evening of socialization. And it wasn't just that the Pharisees didn't understand why. They didn't seem to care why. They didn't seem to want to. They came to Christ's disciples not to understand but to express their disgust. But Jesus, however, he gives them the why anyways. He says to them in verse 12, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus tells them, these people need me. They want to be in my presence. They need to be in my presence. Like someone who is sick needs a physician, so do we need to be with, to know, to be close to Jesus. It's here that we're shown the desperate need that we have for Christ's mercy. Like a sick person desperately needs a physician, so do we desperately need our Lord and Savior. So while the first way that Jesus confronts exclusivity was to call the greatest sinner to follow him, Jesus' rebuke here to the Pharisees emphasizes the second way, and that is to welcome all people. Jesus tells them that he's here to show mercy and compassion but he also then tells man to go and learn what it means to show mercy and compassion. Jesus puts the responsibility on man to show that same mercy that he has shown us. Jesus calls the greatest sinners, but he also calls his followers to welcome them as well. This was a common issue with the Pharisees. Later in Matthew 10, or Matthew 12, sorry, Jesus' disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees complained about this. Jesus tells them again, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. 
The statement, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, means that the expectations, the rules or traditions that we practice outside of what is in Scripture, needs to be filtered through the lens of the greatest and the second greatest commandment, which is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Followers of Jesus show mercy and compassion when they welcome any and all who need him. Followers of Jesus should not practice liturgy, tradition, cultural, or social expectations at the cost of Christ's command to love God and love others. It's important to be crystal clear here. We've discussed over the past couple of years that liturgy, tradition, and even cultural values have incredible value and can be used to bring us closer to God. As followers of Christ, we just have the responsibility to make sure that what we do, it does not come at the cost of loving God and loving others. Upon reflection, I've realized how difficult that this can be. Sometimes in the church, we speak to each other about how we are like Matthew. We don't deserve to be called to be in the presence of Jesus. We say, I'm a sinner, like the tax collector, and yet Christ saw me and welcomed me into his presence. Then it doesn't take long before we turn from a Matthew into a Pharisee. And I know that I have felt myself going from being the undeserving sinner in need of Jesus to a self-righteous church gatekeeper. Perhaps you felt the same way. We feel desperate need for Christ's mercy, but then moments arise for us to show that same mercy and we become a Pharisee. Jesus says, go and learn what this means. So do we desire mercy or do we desire sacrifice? Here are a few questions maybe to ponder as we reflect that. The first one is this. Is there anyone that could walk through our doors, those doors, and immediately make you uncomfortable? Any person, race, culture, social class, personality. I mean, uncomfortable to the point of avoiding them or looking down on them or wishing they weren't here. Who might that person be to you? Is it a personality, a Republican or a Democrat, someone who has a specific sin or struggle, different values or beliefs? Who might that be? And if no one comes to mind, then let's move on to the second question. Is there anyone that, that you would have trouble inviting into your own home for a meal to socialize? Any person, race, culture, social class, personality that you would struggle to invite over? Or for, for that matter, even go visit them in their home. Who is that for you? Are we truly welcoming to all those who need Jesus? 
Is there anyone that we know in which we've said to ourselves, I can smile, maybe wave politely, say hello, but I don't, don't know if I could have them over for dinner or spend an hour or so with, with them or invite them to my small group or introduce them to my family and friends. If anyone came to mind, there is some that you would struggle to do that to, to show mercy, compassion. I'd encourage you to ask yourself why. What's the reason? What prevents me from showing that mercy and compassion? Now, if you've answered these questions with no one in mind and you've thought to yourself, there is no one I would struggle to welcome or give my time to, don't worry, I've got you covered with a third question, okay? Everyone's going home with an application question here. The third question is really, have you? Have you been welcoming to those in need of Christ? Because we can start with, would we? Is this something I would do? Yeah, this is something maybe I would do. I would feel comfortable. I don't know if there's anyone who I wouldn't invite into my home or go to their home. But is there evidence of that? Is this something that we are doing? We can start the question with, would we welcome all? But it needs to lead to, are we welcoming all? Jesus calls the sinners the marginalized, the needy. That is his ministry, but he requires his followers to do the same. Luke 6, verse 36 says, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful to you. Jesus calls his followers to welcome all people. So as Christ calls us to welcome all people, what are we welcoming them to? We are inviting them <clears throat> into an opportunity to know Jesus and be transformed by Jesus. That's our third point this morning. Jesus' call transforms all. Verse 14 says, The disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? We don't know much about the purpose behind this question. While the previous question asked seems more of a complaint or an expression of disgust, it's hard to understand the reason behind this one. Maybe it came from natural curiosity or maybe a place of pride or superiority. Either way, the group asking this question highlighted their concern that the practice of fasting wasn't being quite done in the way that they thought it should be. Jesus answers and says in verse 15, he says, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus, in other words, says, What is the purpose of these practices? Why would this make sense? Are these rituals or practices helping to become transformed by Jesus to grow in a relationship with him? You see, the disciples of Jesus were able to be with him, to be transformed by him, and it was because they were with him that they did not need these rituals, practices, or traditions. They simply just needed to be with him. And those asking the question focused on the necessity of religious practice without a focus on the transformational presence of Jesus, the purpose of these practices, or what the purpose should be 
The point here is that not man nor rituals and practices does the transformation, but it is Jesus himself. Verses 16 to 17, Jesus continues to explain this through a couple of parables. He says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Like the guests of a bridegroom are filled with joy at being with him, so were the disciples filled with joy by being with their Lord. Imposing the practices of fasting on the disciples would be like putting an unshrunk cloth on an old garment or like putting new wine into old wineskins. They don't work well together. Furthermore, they don't really make sense together. I want to be clear with what I'm trying to communicate here. Liturgy, rituals, and practices, as we talked about, has incredible value. Jesus is not trying to communicate that fasting was wrong or that traditions or practices should be abandoned. Instead, he was communicating the need to reflect on the purpose that these tools have. Spiritual practices are to guide us in regular participation in the deepening of our awareness of God and our affection for God. And if that is our purpose, then these are good. It is when we believe that these rituals or practices themselves are what transform us, that's when we make the mistake. Ultimately, it's the work of Christ that transforms. And furthermore, if we are even excluding people in our hearts, the way that Jesus confronts us about this is through conviction, through the Word, through the Holy Spirit. These convictions bring transformation, and Jesus confronts us of this through the conviction of our sins. Are we acting on these convictions, or are we passively accepting our sins, or exclusivity. The reality is that the transformational work isn't always transformational in the way that man expects it to be. Sometimes we try to fit it in a box that works best for us or is most convenient, most logical, or beneficial. And some of the ways in which we do this is through our own pride and superiority. We tell ourselves that we know the way to be transformed. We create a path for transformation. Maybe if I sing five worship songs in the morning every day, I'll be a better Christian. Or if I listen to a sermon a day, I'll be more transformed. If the purpose of these items, once again, are a way for you to deepen your awareness of God and affection for him, then do that. But allow the deepening of your relationship with God to take hold and allow that to do the transformational work. The other way that we sometimes hinder this transformational work is through pride and exclusivity. We look down maybe on other people because they are not worshiping the way that we feel they should. They don't read the Bible in the same way or pray in the same manner. We look down on others because they don't practice Sabbath or rest in the same way that we do. In our hearts, we tell ourselves that we are more transformed because we have found the proper rituals or practices. Where is our superiority 
our exclusivity, hindering the transformational work of Christ in ourselves and others. Because as we said, ultimately in the passage this morning, it wasn't the fasting that Jesus took issue with. It was the idea that fasting itself was the most important thing. But seeking Christ and being in his presence is the most important thing. And while we are not able to be in the physical presence of Christ in the same way that his disciples were, we have been given the Holy Spirit who does sanctify us and transform us in the same way. I think what this passage this morning has made clear to me is that sometimes our exclusivity, our pride, can hinder the transformational work of Christ in us and others. That our desire to be special or exclusive prevents us from welcoming others into a church that we feel is for a certain type of people. That our desire to push programs or practices without a Christ-centered focus leaves us feeling like we can transform ourselves however we see fit. That our exclusivity will our exclusivity will either lead us to communicate to others that they don't belong, or it will blind us into thinking that we belong because we've earned it. So here's a few important truths from our passage this morning. First, Christ emptied himself to show mercy and compassion for the undeserving, and none of us are undeserving. Two, Christ desires that we empty ourselves of our pride, our position, and our preferences to show that same mercy and compassion on others. And three, Christ transforms all those he calls, not by our work, not by what we can do, but by his work in us and through the Holy Spirit and his word. Where do you feel you struggle when it comes to some of these things? Maybe you can, we can ask ourselves this week, are we a disciple of Jesus, undeserved, but called and transformed by his presence? Or are we like a Pharisee, feeling worthy and righteous, but only because of our own self-imposed, self-made religion? When we humbly accept the call of Christ and we empty ourselves of our pride and exclusivity, we'll find God beginning a transformational work in us. It isn't easy, and there's going to be some growing pains, but the reward is your life transformed and a church of believers who are growing together to live like Jesus and love like Jesus. And that's my hope for us this morning. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.